and welcome to this latest Master Investor podcast. Uh, I'm Jonathan Davis, and today we're going to be talking to Alex Wedge, who is co-manager of the Land Trust UK Microcap Fund. And that fund uh, has put together a splendid record over the last uh, uh, six years since it was launched in 2016. And uh, Alex is uh, has been working for the firm for the last couple of years, and you're a member of the uh, of the uh, so-called economic advantage team at Land Trust, which has a particular uh, style of investing. And this fund has uh, won the UK uh, Small Cap Award in the Master Investor Awards. And uh, uh, so it's a very good opportunity to talk to you, Alex, and uh, hear about uh, the fund and what's been happening, uh, not just last year, but when it was a very good year, but also uh, this year. So welcome. Good morning, Jonathan. So let's kick off and just talk a little bit about uh, the, the the fund, the Land Trust UK Microcap Fund. Uh, this is a fund that, uh, obviously, by its name, specialises in smaller companies and particularly the the smallest capitalised companies. Perhaps you could just remind us what your universe is and how uh, where you go fishing for stocks, because I think you're. It's fair to say you invest in both the AIM and the uh, and the FTSE All Share. Uh, index, FTSE smaller companies index as well. So tell us about your uh, your remit, as it were. Yeah, perfect. And thank you very much for having me on. Um, so it'd be worth me probably recapping the process uh, to give you a bit of a flavour for how we invest. But in terms of the universe, uh, for this fund, we are looking to invest in companies below 175 million market cap. So uh, these are the very smallest companies uh, on the UK market. Um, as I say, we are agnostic for AIM or full list companies, um, about 90% of the companies in this fund are on AIM. Um, that's just usually where we tend to find ideas. It tends to be where there are more new world economy businesses. And also, as I'll come on to talk about, we have a particular focus on owner manager businesses. So where the management teams own significant equity in the businesses, um, and they tend to want to list or name. Um, there are various benefits for doing that. Indeed, there's a, some tax advantages and uh, a number of other reasons as well. But uh... Uh, and of course, uh, regulation is slightly lighter in the early years of these companies. But I think one of the things that's been impressive has been the way that the AIM market has developed over the years. It was seen originally years ago as being kind of a place where the one or two, uh, should we say, um, some people call them cow cowboys used to go in the resources sector in particular. But it's uh, matured uh, very impressively since then. So let's talk about your process. Um, uh, I mentioned you're part of this uh, team called uh, the Economic Advantage Team. Perhaps you could... Uh, just elaborate a bit more on, on that before we look at what you've actually been buying and selling and so on. Yeah, brilliant. Well, maybe if I just give a quick introduction to myself and the team, and then I'll go on to the process. So um, so I joined in March 2020. So that was obviously an interesting time to join any firm, let alone an investment firm in, in the height of COVID. Um, before that, I was a stockbroker at M plus one, single, single capital markets, as they're called now. Um, so I got to know the team by selling to them, basically. So I knew the process before I joined, the ideas they liked. Uh, and also the company. So I knew uh, Matt, Victoria and Anthony in particular on the small cap side. Um, the team's interesting, Matt and Victoria joined in 2015-16 uh, to launch this fund. Um, but Anthony, who's the sort of uh, architect of the process, um, has actually been running the small cap fund since 1998 where he came up with this process. So there's a lot of rich expertise in small cap investing within the team. So the process. Um, so the theory that Anthony had back in 1998 is that intangible assets would give companies barriers to competition and pricing power. Um, he researched and studied the various uh, assets that were out there in academic literature. 
And we narrowed it down to a top three. So any company that we own has to have a show demonstrate one of these assets. And they are intellectual property, distribution, or repeat business. So intellectual property is a patents, uh, know-how, uh, often in healthcare companies, software companies, clearly. Um, distribution is an interesting one. Um, originally, this was a think about a big physical network. So Unilever, Diageo selling Guinness around the world. We often see a digital distribution network in our in our smaller microcap companies. So companies that are embedded in their end customer's workflow. Um, so an example in one of our funds would be like a right move where you, you don't have offices around the UK, but you're embedded in estate agents across the UK through your software. And the last one would be repeat business. So we define this as having contracted revenue of at least 70%. Um, we often find this in our software companies. So they sell their product as a recurring software, so called SaaS. Um, or it's our fee-based financials. So uh, we own the wealth managers, we own the platform companies, so you get ad valorem fees. So to go into the fund, you have to have at least, or show, demonstrate at least one of these attributes. Um, we then also value other intangible assets, so things like strong brand, strong culture, formats and procedures. So that's the first stage of the process. Um, we also, it's important to say, rule out uh, any loss-making companies. Uh, we don't buy any loss-making companies, and they have to be UK headquartered. The second stage of the process is then to say, having identified one of these assets, we then want to try and test if it's working in financial terms. Uh, and we use a system called Quest, um, which is owned by Canical Genuity. Um, Quest has got an interesting stock picking history. Um, originally, it was conceived by Terry Smith when he was a stockbroker at Collins Stewart. Um, and in particular, we look at something called cash flow return on capital. So looking at the actual cash generated by the company, um, and we think this is probably the most conservative way to look at a company. Um, often when things can go wrong, they might be revenue recognition issues or uh, adjusting earnings. So we like this metric. And what we're looking for is for companies to make a return above their cost of capital to be a value creating entity. Uh, the theory being that if you can't do that, then eventually you'll either go under or you'll need new financing. So we look at these metrics um, through Quest to sort of demonstrate our theory of one of these barriers to competition. Um, you clearly don't have the slides in front of you, but just to illustrate that our cash flow returns on capital are a lot higher than the average UK company in our universe, but also a lot higher than the cost of capital. So the CFROC at last reading was at 13.4%. Uh, the universe was about 5%. Um, and clearly the cost of capital, which uh, we, we can debate, is around 6%. So that's the second stage of our process. Um, the final two I'll just rush through because I'm conscious of time, but um, is valuation. So having found a company we like, it's making the returns we like, it's got this intangible asset that we like. Clearly, we don't want to overpay uh, that because you might have to wait a long term, a long time, sorry, to make money as a shareholder. So all companies have to be profitable. Um, for our smaller companies where the micro caps fit in, um, we don't have as stringent measures as we do in our large caps, but we'd look for them to be cheaper or comparable to another listed business, either in the fund or on the market. So for example, if it was a recurring income software business, we've clearly got some of those in the fund. There are those listed on the market. So we'd use that as our benchmark. Um, but valuation is very much at the back end of our process. We're very much looking to find these good compounding businesses and buy and hold them for a long time. Um, and the very final bit, and I'll promise I'll hand back to questions is, um, is position sizing. So having made a decision to buy a company, the next decision is how much to buy. Um, and this is why I think we're potentially different from some of our peers where we 
divorce our enthusiasm, our excitement for a stock, um, and just look at risk. So we've got 13 risk measures that we use. Um, so things like financial risk, product dependency, customer dependency. And we're really trying to be think about these as like a business owner. What are the things that could derail your business? Um, so you can either be a 1%, 2 or 3% position in the fund, and that's really that a 1% would be our most risky companies and a 3% would be our least risky. Um, and we think this is just a sensible way to run money in small cap where things can go wrong. But when they do go wrong, we want to have the least amount of money in them. So that's why we use that risk grid. Um, so I appreciate that was a, a whirlwind tour through the process, but I'll, I'll pause there. It certainly was. And I think you were, well, you certainly underlined the fact that this is a, a process driven uh, investment uh, style that you, that you adopt, um, I guess. Uh, and they all sound, I mean, they're all very positive uh, features to look for. Uh, I wonder how much that actually narrows your universe down out of the uh, number of stocks of potential you can invest in. Uh, and how do you arrive at the, the number of positions? Uh, presumably it's uh, a partly a function of, uh, of how big the universe is. It is. I mean, the things that tend to limit the universe the most are um, loss-making companies, uh, clearly UK headquartered, um, and also this management ownership. So um, we require a minimum of 3% of the equity to be owned by the um, PDMRs, we call them, the senior management team, so the executives who run the company. So those are things that limit it. But um, we do find that there's quite a healthy entrepreneurial market in smaller companies in the UK. Um, we talked about AIM clearly, there are benefits for those entrepreneurs listing their companies on AIM. Um, we aim to have about, about 60 to 70 stocks in the portfolio. We're sort of at 64 at the moment. So we see quite a rich picking of ideas in the UK in this end of the market. There's always a natural uh, higher turnover of stocks in this portfolio um, because I mentioned we look to buy below 175, but we also look to start our selling clock at 275 million. So um, as companies succeed and get bigger, then we try and keep our discipline by having that uh, upper limit of where we go. Um, but that's why we've got other funds like the smaller companies fund and special situations, which um, we can keep these great companies in the sort of a uh, stable of our funds as it were, but for the micro cap fund, we have that discipline. Okay, so and, and I mean we we know about AIM that when some particularly in the last few years there've been some spectacular successes, uh, you know, growth stocks uh, doing very very well. Um, and how often is it the case that actually you're you're you know you're put out of these trusts by them becoming overvalued in, in your on your mechanism? So um, so clearly, I guess there's two bits to that. Um, in our risk positioning, um, which I mentioned, we do that at point of purchase, but we also actively monitor that as we go along. And one of the risk criteria is valuation, which is on our grid. So the consequence of that is that we might own less of a stock. If it becomes expensive, we might risk score it for valuation. Um, but we wouldn't sell out of a company on valuation alone. Um, we're not a style that has target prices. Um, we're very much a buy and hold. So if companies do get expensive, that can lead to them becoming too big for our fund, uh, for this fund in particular. Um, and there are multiple examples of where we've seen big re-ratings in the, um, the shares, and unfortunately, we've had to sell. But that also allows us to then find the next microcap idea coming through. And um, an example of AB Dynamics, for example, is one that we use in our presentation, which um, they do driving robots for uh, OEM car manufacturers. And that was a stock that re-rated a huge amount when it was in microcap and became too big, so three, 400 million market cap, and we sold. And that's an example of how that would work in the process. So, uh... I mean, one of the reasons why you've been uh, won this award is because the performance obviously has been uh, 
very good, uh, even after the sell-off in the market this year. I think over five years, you're about 78%, something like that. Uh, and what's impressive to me, anyway, is the fact that uh, you know this has been achieved with, with a level of volatility, which is actually uh, lower than the, than the market as a whole. Uh, so that's, uh, that's impressive. That obviously produced some very impressive uh, risk-adjusted returns. Uh, particularly given you're operating in this, uh, you know, what would conventionally be seen as a higher risk area. Uh, so um, were you surprised about this, the outcome? I mean, the fact that you have lower volatility than, uh, than the market as a whole, that's, that's an impressive uh, achievement, is it not, in this area? Thank you. Uh, well, clearly, we're, we're very pleased with that. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, I, I guess I've never known a normal time in this job in terms of having joined in 2020, and clearly we've gone straight into uh, inflation and Russia. Um, I mean, I think one of the potential misconceptions of smaller companies is that they, of course, can be more risky. But, you know, we are buying businesses that are profitable, have strong business models and often have very strong balance sheets. So, you know, um, roughly two thirds of the companies in our fund have net cash positions. And, and that's really driven by these owner managers. So I mentioned this three percent minimum that we have. Um, you know, the average is closer to 20%. So these are entrepreneurs or families that are well invested alongside us. So therefore tend to be quite conservative on risk in terms of balance sheet or acquisition. Um, so we feel that actually in times of worry, the funds tend to outperform better in terms of economic worry because of that quality footprint in terms of balance sheet and business models. Um, clearly COVID was slightly different where um, I would say it was more by the style of the fund, not earning sort of leisure companies, pub companies, airlines. And that was no great prediction of ours of, of COVID. That was very much just the footprint of the fund. So um, it's been great to see that the, the funds perform well in those different environments. But I'd say it's the sort of output of our style, which we you know have stuck to for a long time, rather than any genius call or macro, because we, we don't do any macro overlay on this fund. And if we just look at some of the companies that you own, we might come back to what's happening this year in a moment. But if we look at some of the companies that uh, you own, um, we'll talk about maybe a couple that have done particularly well for you and a couple that have not worked out, just as an illustration of the kind of thing that has been going on in the fund. Um, I mean, looking down your list of you know top holdings, uh, I did notice there's, I mean, there's, they're very much uh, in businesses of the kind that you've described. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, software as a service and consulting businesses and so on. Um, so would you pick out a couple of stocks that have done particularly well for you as, and, and why they illustrate the success of your method? Sure. Um, maybe if I just choose one on, on the top 10, because that's something that people could see when they if they go online. Um, so we, we like um, fee-based financial businesses, so something like um, Tatton Asset Management that we've owned for a couple of years. So I can talk about some more short-term ones, but something that's performed well over a longer period of time. Um, so they are a low-cost uh, DFM provider. Um, and that's a great example of a stock we like where it's capital light. So it makes those strong cash flow return on capital, very entrepreneurial management team. Um, and often we don't target growth per se. We're very much targeting those intangible assets that I talked about, but often our entrepreneurs will target a business or a model, which has got long runway for growth. So that's a stock where we saw a large opportunity for them to grow into the advisor market, making strong returns. Um, and this recurring income model being a fee-based financial has meant that they've produced strong financial returns, but also then because they're sort of hitting and beating expectations or have done over their, their life of being listed, um, the stock market's rewarded them nicely for that. So that's one that um, the team bought at IPO. So I can't take any personal credit for choosing it, but um, it's been a strong performer for us. 
Okay, and then, uh, I mean, occasionally there are things that go wrong, notwithstanding your rigorous method. Uh, I noticed recently you talked about a company called Cakebox, uh, which uh, there appears to be in some, uh, some maybe some accounting issues. Uh, can you tell us about that one, just as an example of how things can go wrong, even despite the rigor of your process? No, sure. Yeah, so things absolutely will go wrong in small cap, and that's very much where our risk scoring and risk grids comes into play. Um, it, it, in reference to Kbox, it's not stock that we hold anymore. Um, in our risk grids, accounting risk and financial risk is our, our main weight. So there are four or five metrics that we use to score companies on that. Um, so that was a company that we bought. They then reported some of these uh, accounting issues, which were flagged by an external party. So we took the decision to exit the position from our risk point of view, where um, we felt the risks of those things we wanted to see unfold rather than continuing to hold the position. But you're absolutely right, things can go wrong. Um, I mean, I think you asked in your, your questions to me before in terms of things, the worst things that we've held since. Um, so the worst things we've held since the fund launched um, will be a stock called IDE. Um, this is an IT managed service business. Um, and I think there was a culmination of issues, but I think that cash flow and debt in particular were problems for that company and how it was growing. Um, it's still around today, but it's not a stock we hold anymore. So I guess I'd say to you that, you know, we try and get the business model right and we risk score, but things can go wrong. And it's where we use our risk grid to minimize how much we have in them. And if we feel the risks are too much or the returns are not being produced as we'd like, we'd often look to exit the company. Um, we're not a trading style per se, but if we feel that underlying thesis is not there anymore, we wouldn't look to hold the company anymore. Well, as I said earlier, the performance has been good uh, over over a period of years, uh, particularly good beating your indices, your benchmark indices, and uh, first quartile in terms of the competition. So that's very good. But of course, you have we have had a big market sell-off certainly among small cap companies this year, and I think the fund is down what about 16 percent this year as we're talking today. Um, so, what do you think? Is that uh, are you seeing this as uh, as an opportunity, or and what kind of companies have been worst affected by the the sell-off? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, um, so we, we have seen a bit of a downdraft in valuations for quality growth companies across the market spectrum. And um, although we don't target that per se, that's very much the footprint of the fund. And that's the sort of output of the things that we're looking for. You know, we're looking for these barriers to competition, high returns on capital. Um, so we've seen valuations come down. So you're right to say that we, we've we come down. Um, this fund hasn't got an official benchmark, but we're Sort of first quartile against our peers um year to date as you say down sort of 14 15 percent um i guess what the obvious thing that we've seen is that the more consumer facing stocks have had more difficult times of late um we do have some exposure in the fund um we own things like virgin wines for example which uh, you know ha had a an update beginning of the year, tempering expectations. Um, but across the market, things that we don't hold, for example, like Halfords or Procook selling cooking equipment or DFS, you know, had an update recently. So I guess that sort of well-publicized consumer squeeze is starting to bite in terms of earnings expectations and the market's trying to adjust to that. So I'd say that we've seen the first wave of disappointments have been in the sort of discretionary consumer stocks in the market, which we're structurally underweight because we don't find many of them that fit our process but we do have a few that have sort of tempered expectations um, I think the other ones would be that we own the fee-based financials and clearly they're geared to market levels and flows so um, although they 
have still got good business models, things like Tassin, for example, still performing really well. Uh, they had results recently, but clearly market levels are going to affect, you know, consensus forecasts and growth, you know, in terms of asset levels. So I would say they're the initial uh, impacts we've seen. And is there just a... Tell us a little bit about uh, you know liquidity in some of the stocks that you own. I mean, amongst very small companies, microcaps, uh, there's sometimes liquidity issues which can magnify the extent to which share prices adjust. Is that a factor as well in the, in your portfolio? Um, I think it's a feature of the market. You know, clearly this is a microcap fund, and liquidity will clearly be lower than in larger companies. I mean, I think that we um, we always try and be sensible about these things. So we hold a decent amount of cash. You know, we only own profitable businesses. Um, and often that's also because we want to have firepower for new ideas if they come around. Often these smaller microcap companies might trade in bigger blocks rather than lots of daily liquidity. So that'll be an opportunity for us to look at new ideas and having that firepower, you know, ready on standby. Um, so it's definitely a feature of the market. I mean, a consequence of that as well is that microcap companies don't tend to react as much to um, market moves. Um, so you'll see that a lot of the microcaps might not move on a red day in the market. And that's simply just because people aren't trading them as actively as you would, uh, you know, a FTSE 250 or FTSE 100, where, you know, people might be doing big macro trades and these microcaps are slightly out of the spectrum or out of the light of that. So uh, we tend to see less sort of daily intra moves on these microcaps than, for example, in our small companies fund, where they are bigger, smaller companies um, in terms of market cap size. So let's uh, turn finally to uh, you know to the outlook from here. We're in obviously this uh, uh, what is a slightly unusual period, at least for those with uh, shorter memories. Those of us with longer memories have slightly can recognise some of the symptoms. But we're looking here at a period where we're having very high inflation, uh, which is yet to be brought under control. We've got rising interest rates. Uh, we've obviously got a war in Ukraine, and commodity prices are very high, and so on. Consumers under pressure, as you've mentioned. Um, so what do you think the, the outlook is for here, for your particular style of investing, given all these uh, uh, things that are going on around the world? I mean, are we, if, we, if we are entering into a, a slightly different uh, investment regime, at least for the next couple of years, uh, you know, how, do you expect your, how would you expect your fund to perform during this kind of period? Yeah, I think if I knew the exact answer to that, then that would be a very uh, <laughs> interesting read. I mean, I think that... Um... I guess the things that we can control and we focus on day to day are the health of our companies and the positions that we've got in them. And I think that overall, we're very pleased about how our companies are positioned, the, the health of the companies and how they're trading in general has been very strong. Um, I mean, a sort of tenant of the investment process through these barriers to competition and intangible assets is pricing power. And, you know, we it, no one's seen inflation this high for a long time. So clearly, it's been a, a test of that theory in terms of being able to put up prices. So we've been reassured actually that a lot of our companies have talked about putting prices through um, and having pricing power. So from that side of things, we've been pleased. I mean, I guess the the market's trying to sort of weigh up interest rates going up in terms of how you want to value growth companies, you know, long duration assets, um, but also economic or potentially recession next year. And there's a bit of a trade-off between those two where generally quality would outperform in a recessionary environment with those quality, good balance sheets, more reliable incomes. But there's a sort of downward pressure on valuations from interest rates. And that's what, you know, I don't know how that will pan out. But I think in the long term, you know, we've got a, a huge amount of conviction in our process. Um, and, you know, this fund's clearly produced 
you know pleasing results that you know we're we're happy with since launch but you know our smaller companies fund you know has been run by Anthony since 1998 and produced very good returns over many different cycles and environments so I think that's probably the longest track record track record period you could hope to have on a smaller companies fund with the same manager at the same firm so um, I think there's good evidence looking back um, and I think we're very happy with the companies that we own and as much you know as much as anybody could be with the current environment and outside the uh, the macro environment which obviously is something you can't control not when your companies control they can they can uh, mediate it um are there any risks you think in terms of we know that uh, you know the chance is talking about putting out corporation tax uh, and do you think there is a, a risk that some of the uh, the benefits that uh, aim companies have enjoyed might be changed uh, by the government i mean that if you're 90 percent involved in that particular market do you think do you see that as a particular uh, risk that uh, might keep you awake at night uh, i wouldn't say it keeps us up, up at night i mean i think it's um it's obviously something that's been long talked about and debated but it's um you know it's very much outside of our control and you know day to day we're trying to focus on the the controllables of the companies we own the things we can control like position sizing and new ideas and i think when times of turbulent as they are at the moment we're clearly share prices uh, volatile and some having come back a long way you know we're using that as an opportunity to look at new ideas which maybe would uh, we thought too expensive or maybe they've been too big for this fund you know the market caps have gone beyond our 175 and now they're maybe back within range so um, we're very much trying to focus on the day to day and not we call it screen watch in terms of getting too fixated on some of these things you can't control um, but you know we've got conviction in the companies we own and I think whatever regime uh, comes around we're, we're happy with those companies so well, that brings us to an end of this uh, podcast thank you Alex so much for sharing uh, your thoughts with us and uh, indeed uh, congratulations on winning this smaller companies award uh, this has been a master investor podcast Thank you very much, Jonathan, and also clearly credit to the rest of my team because it's uh, very much a team effort.